This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode features discussions of injury and death that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. On the morning of November 14, 1969, the second U.S. mission to the moon blasted off from Cape Kennedy, Florida. Charles Pete Conrad Jr., one of the three astronauts, keyed his mic and said, That's a lovely liftoff. Mission Control was glad to hear it. They'd been concerned about the cloud cover and intermittent rain over the launch site. But as Apollo 12 pierced through the stormy gray clouds, Everything seemed to be going perfectly. Then, 36 seconds after liftoff, fellow astronaut Richard Gordon saw a bright flash of lightning outside the capsule window. He mumbled, what the hell was that? At the exact same moment, most of the flight control monitors down in Houston went haywire. The data coming from the rocket was jumbled. No one knew what was happening to Apollo 12 as it climbed a mile and a half above Earth. Inside the capsule, the instrument panel lit up like a theater marquee. Dozens of warning lights flashed at the astronauts. Then another flash and a jolt shook the rocket, now traveling at 1,600 feet per second. Pete shouted, I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. But to Pete's horror, mission control was completely silent. Panicked, he put his hand on the abort handle that would fire the escape engine and disconnect their capsule. He knew the ejection would cause such intense force that they could end up crippled or dead. But it was the only option left. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our fifth episode on the dark side of space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of U.S. history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. At Parcast, 
we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we learned about the mental and physical health hazards underlying a voyage to outer space. This week, we'll be examining catastrophic failures in space, which often give way to tragic consequences, from massive rocket fuel explosions to the painful loss of astronaut lives. Humanity's journey to the stars has never been easy. Fatal design flaws, suicidal mission tasks, and spacecraft parts built by the lowest bidder were all rungs in the dangerous ladder astronauts hoped to climb into space. We've learned how the U.S. consistently came in second place during the space race against Russia. It was only with the moon landing that they finally achieved a victory. But the Soviet Union hid many of the harrowing details behind their own first place achievements. That first man in space, he barely made it home. On April 12, 1961, the Russian spacecraft Vostok 1 completed circling the Earth. But upon re-entry, its braking engine glitched, putting the capsule into a wild spin as it plummeted into the atmosphere. Cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin nearly passed out from the G-forces. He later recalled, the spacecraft started spinning around its axis with very high speed of rotation, around 30 degrees per second. Gagarin's vision blurred. His eyeballs flattened slightly as the spin reached 10 Gs, or 10 times the force of gravity. He braced himself against the capsule bulkhead and waited for the massive rotational forces to subside. Then, at 20,000 feet, he ejected and parachuted the rest of the way to Earth. The capsule slammed into the ground with enough force to pulverize anyone inside. Gagarin had barely escaped with his life. Eventually, the glitch was traced to a single valve in the re-entry engine that stuck slightly open, causing the rocket to run out of fuel a mere second too early. This early shutoff meant Gagarin's capsule was still traveling faster than planned, which had caused the flight control system to mistakenly fire the steering thrusters, an error that put the craft into a dangerous spin. Gagarin's pulse-pounding recovery was an alarming example of the extremely narrow margins of failure in space travel. A defect in a single tiny component set off a chain reaction that nearly killed the first man in space. Unfortunately, the United States would also learn of these fatal margins firsthand. By the mid-60s, U.S. space projects Mercury and Gemini had paved the way for a lunar landing program called Apollo. The finish line was to put the first human on the moon, before Russia, a goal set by President John F. Kennedy. But these programs also spawned a different phenomenon at NASA, something historian James Donovan calls Go Fever. In his seminal book on the Apollo program, Shoot for the Moon, Donovan describes the attitude at NASA by late 1966, writing that, The rush was on to get everything done as quickly as possible. The end of the race was in sight. 
if they were going to beat the Soviets, Apollo needed to get off the ground fast, and Apollo 1, a moon-orbiting test mission, was all but ready to blast off. The final step before launch would be a plug-outs test, a complete simulated countdown to launch. The only thing missing would be the fueled rocket booster itself. Everything else would be exactly like the mission, including the astronauts in full spacesuits inside a pressurized capsule. With a locked escape hatch. Mercury 7 astronaut Virgil Ivan Gus Grissom had been upset about the state of the Apollo mission for weeks. The main capsule simulator, the primary tool for training the astronauts on a daily basis, was constantly being updated. Switches and settings would change overnight, and certain parts still hadn't arrived. To show his disgust at these haphazard changes, Grissom even plucked a lemon from a tree in his backyard and hung it on the Apollo simulator in Houston, Texas, signifying that it was a dud. But despite this jest, he was seriously worried that the entire mission had been fatally rushed. At a press conference a few weeks before the plug-outs test, Gus said that the mission would be successful if the astronauts simply made it back alive. The reporters laughed, but Gus didn't. Later, he took Alan Shepard Jr., the first American to travel in space, aside and confided, this is the worst spacecraft I've ever seen. But Gus still had a job to do. On the chilly morning of January 27, 1967, he strapped in alongside pilots Edward White and Roger Chaffee to run a full launch test. He hoped that a good, solid run-through would finally uncover all of the problems he'd been anticipating for months. It was better to find out about a problem during ground tests than 200 miles up in zero gravity and zero air. The Earth's atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, with about 21% oxygen. But in space, the astronauts would use pure oxygen. This allowed for a simplified air supply system, since it was a single gas instead of a mixture. And it also cut down on the weight, as it only required one type of air tank and one set of air hoses. For the Apollo missions, the cabin was pressurized with 100% oxygen, which also put the interior at a higher pressure than outside. As the pressurization began on the morning of the launch simulation, the inner hatch was shut from the outside. To open it in an emergency, the astronauts would have to pull against the pressure inside. The hatch was also locked with six specialized bolts, which required a wrench to open. Not a comforting design in case of an emergency. In previous simulations, no astronaut was able to open the six bolts in less than 90 seconds. This had been another of Gus's gripes, and his mood only got worse as the test day progressed. The three astronauts were locked inside the test capsule by noon. Yet by 5.40 p.m., the simulated launch still hadn't begun. They'd been waiting through five hours of delays and glitches. The sun had almost set, and Gus's patience was nearly up. After the faulty radio interrupted their communication yet again, Gus made a wisecrack to mission control. He said, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? At 6.31 p.m., the three men ran through their launch checklist yet again while they waited. Then, suddenly there was a slight surge in the electrical voltage in the cabin. 
Nine seconds later, Mission Control received the most horrific radio transmission in the history of the space program. One of the astronauts, likely Chaffee, shouted, We've got a fire in the cockpit. Amidst the miles of wiring inside the Apollo capsule, a short circuit had sparked. The flame caught on the nylon webbing beneath Gus's seat, spreading instantly. Seven seconds of silence followed. Then one of the men screamed that the fire was bad and they were burning up. There was one final terrible cry of pain. Then, nothing. The pure oxygen burned in 25 seconds, producing carbon monoxide and smoke. The three astronauts ultimately died from cardiac arrest brought on by the high concentration of carbon monoxide, though each was badly burned. Later, reports estimated that the interior temperature in the burning capsule had reached 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit, the melting point of steel. The pressure created by the heat even ruptured the seal surrounding the hatch, sending a shockwave across the launch platform that knocked several launch pad technicians off their feet. When technicians opened the hatch, they discovered Gus stretched over Ed White, reaching to help open the bolts. Chaffee had died in his seat. On February 3, 1967, less than a week after the disaster, NASA officially suspended all manned spaceflights, including the other three Apollo missions scheduled for that year. A few days later, Deputy Director of Flight Control Gene Kranz called a meeting in Houston of all flight operations personnel and manufacturers in the city. After a brief summary of the fire, Kranz looked out over the crowd. He said that the astronauts died because of the men in that room, including himself. They were responsible. Kranz said, We did not do our job. From this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or fail to do. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. These words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White, and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. But neither regret nor heroic ideals could bring back the three dead astronauts. And no matter how focused the technicians were on their work, terrible mistakes were still bound to happen. That was the nature of having thousands of people make millions of tiny parts to blast into the literal unknown. It was only a matter of time before something else went wrong in the space race. In fact, the next disaster occurred just three months later. Coming up, the most fatal year in the space race reaches its terrible conclusion. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. 
Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1967, most of the world expected the Soviets to pull ahead in the space race. NASA had canceled all manned spaceflights for the year following a fatal fire in Apollo 1 that cost three Mercury 7 astronauts their lives. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union announced their newest manned mission. Everyone at NASA assumed this would be the communist shot for the moon. The agency was still reeling from the fallout of Apollo 1. Now would be an easy moment for the Soviets to claim a victory. But just three months after the American tragedy, the Soviet space program suffered its own horrific disaster. On April 23, 1967, the USSR launched Soyuz 1. Similar to Apollo 1, it would be a test run for a lunar landing. In fact, the Soviets had packed all of their lunar mission tests into this single flight, meaning that if all went well, they could land on the moon by the end of that year. The lone cosmonaut aboard Soyuz was Commander Vladimir Komarov. He was the handsome veteran of earlier orbital flights and one of the best pilots in the Soviet ranks. Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, considered Komarov one of his closest friends and mentors. The Soyuz launch and Komarov's first day orbiting the Earth both went off without a hitch. But on day two, everything went wrong. The solar panels on Soyuz wouldn't unfold correctly, which made the craft unstable, and Komarov had to burn excessive fuel to get the capsule under control. By its 17th orbit, the spacecraft faced low fuel warnings, and Soviet ground controls signaled the orbiter's retro rockets to fire to slow down. But the prompt didn't work. Instead, Komarov had to manually fire the rockets and line up his spacecraft for re-entry. Komarov made it through re-entry and was falling toward Earth for an emergency landing. But now his capsule's parachute wouldn't open. According to one source, an American monitoring station in Istanbul picked up Komarov's final transmissions as he plummeted toward the ground. They were not pleasant. As Komarov plunged to his death, he cursed the government leaders who had made him fly a faulty spacecraft, reportedly saying, This devil ship, nothing I lay my hands on works properly. Then Komarov's capsule plowed into the ground along the Ural Mountains in Kazakhstan. The cosmonaut died from the impact, but the retro rockets exploded and charred his corpse, reducing it to a small mass of molten ash about three feet long. But in the end, Komarov still had the final word. Prior to his flight, he had demanded a public open-casket funeral should anything go wrong. This request had the full support of Soviet hero Yuri Gagarin, and the casket 
stayed open. Images of Komarov's corpse in Moscow's Red Square shocked the world and sunk the Soviet space agency's reputation to a low from which they would never recover. Two years after Komarov's death and following deep investigation and alterations to the safety standards of test flights, NASA's Apollo 11 flight landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong's famous step decidedly won the space race for America. But this triumph was a brief respite from the inherent danger of NASA's voyages. Four months later, Apollo 12's mission was interrupted when lightning struck the rocket just seconds after its launch. It was only the quick thinking of young John Aaron, the lone electrical engineer in mission control, which saved Apollo 12 from a complete disaster. Following the huge jolt of electricity, he remembered an obscure switch in the capsule that could reset the electrical system and keep the mission aloft. It worked, and the glitch hardly made it into the news. But before Project Apollo petered to an end, NASA would see another pulse-pounding mission, one that seized the world's attention, Apollo 13. Everything about Apollo 13's launch on April 11, 1970, was deemed nominal. Mission control speak for all good. In fact, the first two days of the mission were rather uneventful. The three astronauts, James Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert, did little but execute the burn out of Earth orbit toward the moon and make a few live TV broadcasts. By then, few Americans were watching. Apparently, everything was so nominal that the nation had grown bored. But everything changed at 7.08 p.m. on Monday, April 13th. 13 was this mission's unlucky number. During a routine mixing of the spacecraft's oxygen tanks, a short circuit ignited the Teflon insulation around tank number two. This caused an explosion that blew apart the side of the spacecraft. The whole spacecraft rattled, and its alarm panel lit up like a Christmas tree. For a few harrowing minutes, the astronauts thought their entire ship would come apart. On the ground in Houston, Mission Control frantically tried to sort through the surge of telemetry data to discover what had just happened. The computers showed that Apollo 13 was drifting wildly through space and losing oxygen. The flight controllers burst onto their in-house radios, asking questions and comparing answers from their individual stations. It quickly became apparent that this was not a failure in their computers. Something violent had happened to the spacecraft itself. In spite of the alarming development, the mood in Houston remained composed. Flight director Gene Kranz, inventor of NASA's tough and competent mantra, was on duty at the time of the explosion. He forbade any guesses or wild speculation. As such, calm voices read out the data as it came in. Each controller reported what the computers were telling them, even if it didn't seem possible. Apparently, two of three fuel cells had been disconnected, and the vessel had lost a significant percentage of its oxygen supply. The electricity was fluctuating, and the navigation computer showed the crew was close to permanently losing all ability to orient the ship in space, a condition called gimbal lock. But the engineers at Mission Control came through. 
During the 16 minutes after the explosion, the controllers plowed through piles of confusing data. They now understood what was happening on the spacecraft and how to save the astronauts' lives. Step one was to move the men out of the damaged command module and into the lunar module, or LEM, the small craft designed to carry astronauts to and from the moon's surface. Normally, this was a single-use spacecraft meant to be used for only 36 hours. Now, it was the astronauts' lifeboat, their last hope of survival. Inside the LEM, the oxygen system was self-contained and hadn't been damaged. Though it was still connected to the other damaged module, the astronauts were safe, for now. But they were still 180,000 miles from home heading in the general direction of the moon. Mission Control needed to concoct a plan to get the men back soon. They knew Apollo 13 would have to continue around the moon. Without the fuel and safety margins necessary to turn around using the spacecraft engines, their only option was to utilize the moon's gravitational pull. This would allow them to speed up and slingshot back towards Earth. Landing on the moon was no longer an option. Over the next 12 hours, Mission Control did their best to identify the problems with the spacecraft, including new issues that arose as the astronauts ran through their checklists. The damage was so widespread that it was easier to identify what was still working. From there, the engineers discovered what systems had failed. Now they needed to figure out how to restore them while traveling at 3,000 feet per second in outer space. The first priority was a near-complete power down of Apollo 13. Since the explosion had damaged two fuel cells, they only had one left on which to run the navigation computer for re-entry. In Houston, Kranz was blunt with his team, saying, I want you figuring out minimum power in the LEM to sustain life. The astronauts needed to trim down their electrical usage to a small trickle. Otherwise, they'd run out of power before they even reached the turnaround point on the dark side of the moon, and inertia would carry them into the solar system. But without enough electricity for life support or radio, the three astronauts would die in a silent freezing aluminum chamber long before inertia kicked in. It was a grim possibility but luckily the power down worked. Though cold and tired, the astronauts conserved enough battery power to get them around the moon and back to Earth. Their next concern was orienting the vessel to modify their trajectory. Luckily, the astronauts nailed the maneuver, putting Apollo 13 on a return trajectory to Earth. Now all they had to do was land, a task much harder than it may sound. The first step was to jettison the service module where the explosion had occurred. The three men gathered at the window and watched the damaged module as it drifted away. They could finally see the extent of the damage. One whole side of the ship had been blown away. The next step was cutting loose the cherished LEM. The tiny lifeboat wouldn't survive re-entry. The astronauts returned to Apollo 13's tiny command module, cut loose the LEM, and continued their approach to Earth. With only a few hours left before hitting the atmosphere, they had to power up the guidance computer and re-entry systems in the proper order. Then they had to fire the re-entry thrusters to align the spacecraft. 
Unless Apollo 13 hit the atmosphere at a precise angle, it would burn up. The crew was already exhausted from the 90-hour ordeal, but this was their last hurdle. Any mistake would be fatal. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and Deke Slayton, the head of the astronaut ranks, knew the pilots needed to focus now more than ever. He radioed up to astronaut level, saying, Jim, I know that none of you are sleeping. Because it's so cold, you might want to dig out the medical kit there and pull out a couple of dexedrine tablets apiece. Dexedrine was a mild amphetamine, like low-grade speed. They popped the pills and strapped in for the remaining 37,000 miles. Fortunately, the astronauts executed the procedures to perfection. Apollo 13 re-entered Earth's atmosphere at 9.52 a.m. on April 17th dropping at 35,837 feet per second. During re-entry, the radio cut out, and for a few minutes, everyone on the ground wondered if the capsule's landing parachutes would work. They might have been damaged in the explosion or frozen solid after four days in unheated space. Just then, the live television broadcast picked up three deployed parachutes in the sky. The tiny capsule splashed down just a few miles away. The three astronauts were rescued minutes later. The Apollo 13 failure was one of the most watched NASA missions of all time. Humans may strive for the stars, but nothing gets more attention than tragedy. And unfortunately, NASA's greatest misfortunes were yet to come. Coming up, Two catastrophic failures bring the highest death toll in NASA history. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. The Apollo program ended in 1973 after Apollo 17. For the next decade, NASA turned its attention back to near-Earth orbit and goals that were closer to home. Having won the space race, the agency was confronted with the unavoidable economic truth of space travel. It was really expensive. Amidst the economic downturn of the 1970s, the space agency strove to develop a new kind of spacecraft that could pay for itself. This meant no more single-use modules or massive boomsticks that went up and never came back down. The new reusable spacecraft design was dubbed the Space Shuttle. It would carry payloads that private corporations paid to have launched into space, offsetting the costs of running the planet's largest space agency. 
Realizing that NASA might actually start bringing in money instead of burning it up in the atmosphere, Nixon gladly signed off on the plan. Considering his day-to-day -day concerns were gas shortages and a wheezing economy, a somewhat self-sustaining space agency was an exciting prospect indeed. In the end, six space shuttles were constructed, with five able to reach orbit. Their names were Enterprise, Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavor. Unlike the capsules and rockets of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, the space shuttles looked like small aircraft. They launched into orbit bolted onto the back of a huge orange fuel tank and a pair of long white rocket boosters. The boosters did most of the heavy lifting along with the shuttle's own trio of rocket engines. The white rocket boosters would disconnect just before leaving the atmosphere and fall back into the ocean to be collected and reused. All in all, the big orange gas tank was the only part that wouldn't come back to Earth. After the orbital mission was complete, the shuttle re-entered the atmosphere using its protective heat shield and glided to a landing like any other aircraft. This slick design allowed the shuttles to land in relatively mint condition, ready for reuse. This efficiency wasn't the only thing NASA was proud of. The space shuttles were to be the safest space vehicles ever constructed, built to rigorous standards which allowed the same vessels to be used for decades without concern. As such, each of the millions of individual parts in the shuttle and boosters were made to survive multiple trips. The original design even imagined that the shuttles could be launched weekly, a big dose of optimism. But each of these moving parts also represented a possible point of failure. And by using one component frequently, it would inevitably wear out far more quickly. This repeat usage was especially hard on the rocket boosters. Although NASA tested and repaired the shuttles to standards beyond those of the Apollo era, they now had flight schedules to keep. After all, they were launching payloads on private companies' dime. The first shuttle to launch was Columbia on April 12, 1981. For NASA, the mission was a rousing introduction to the future of orbital space travel. But as the launches continued over the next few years, the reuse of certain components revealed weaknesses and design flaws. Some parts weren't holding up to expectations. Expensive replacements and repairs were needed more often than originally anticipated, and as anomalies were discovered with each launch, NASA quickly fell behind in repairing its surmounting issues. Eventually, they simply changed the testing standards to allow for larger margins of acceptable risk. This gradual departure from flight director Gene Kranz's tough and competent mantra allowed the space agency to grow negligent. And unfortunately, Kranz himself would be in mission control on the day this neglect caught up to NASA. January 28, 1986 marked exactly 29 years and one day after the Apollo 1 fire. It was also the launch date of the space shuttle Challenger. The milestone 25th shuttle launch was scheduled for 11.38 a.m. from Cape Canaveral, Florida. The seven Challenger crew members strapped in preparing for takeoff. 
One of these was Krista McAuliffe, a schoolteacher from New Hampshire and the first American civilian to venture into space. McAuliffe's inclusion on the shuttle roster was an exciting bit of publicity. She was even scheduled to teach a science lesson from orbit. Classrooms across the nation watched the live broadcast of Challenger's launch. But 73 seconds after liftoff, a tiny plume of fire burst out the side of the right-hand rocket booster. Almost instantly, the fuel tank exploded. Challenger disappeared into a ball of flame and vapor, live on CNN, and in front of thousands of children across America. On the ground at Kennedy Space Center, a gasp reverberated through the crowd of spectators. The two rocket boosters continued their erratic flights, still intact, but now free from the fuel tank. They spiraled out of control and splashed down minutes later. For the next hour, pieces of debris from the destroyed spacecraft rained down into the Atlantic. One of these was the crew cabin, where all seven crew members were still strapped into their seats. Several of them were still alive and possibly conscious as the cabin fell back to Earth. The subsequent investigation found that several emergency air tanks had been activated in the cabin, indicating that at least two of the crew had survived the explosion and cabin depressurization long enough to turn on their emergency air. It took two minutes and 45 seconds for the cabin to reach the water. But when it finally plunged into the ocean, it was moving at 200 miles per hour. The incredible G-forces crushed the cabin and everything inside. When the wrecked cabin was discovered and retrieved from the seafloor, the astronauts' corpses were too injured to draw a firm conclusion on their cause of death. But what is certain about the Challenger disaster is the source of its failure. NASA knew immediately what had gone wrong. Even more disturbing, they knew before Challenger even launched. The engineers of the solid rocket boosters had warned NASA that the seals between the sections of the rocket, called O-rings, could fail in cold weather. And the night before Challenger launched, temperatures at Cape Canaveral reached a low of 18 degrees Fahrenheit. At that temperature, the O-rings became stiff and loose, allowing the explosive rocket propellant to leak out from between booster sections. This leakage was the tiny plume of flame seen just before the explosion. NASA knew about the risky O-rings from previous launches, but the SEALs had never failed before. Besides, Challenger's flight had already been delayed twice. NASA needed to keep to their schedule if they wanted to show that the shuttle was reliable for companies to hire, not to mention the public relations nightmare that would come from once again postponing Krista McAuliffe's science lesson from space. This schedule over safety approach was distilled into a single quote. When the booster engineers reported the likely failure of the O-rings the night before, the NASA manager overseeing the launch said, my God, when do you want me to launch? Next April? Facing pressure from the NASA managers, the engineers retracted their recommendations and the doomed launch went ahead. The fates of the seven people aboard the Challenger were determined by the schedule. Challenger remained the most deadly catastrophe in NASA's history until 2003. And once again, 
NASA knew in advance that failure was possible. When space shuttle Columbia blasted off on January 16, 2003, a chunk of foam insulation from the orange fuel tank fell off. The piece was the size of a suitcase and weighed just over a pound and a half, yet it hit the left wing of the shuttle, causing a small cloud of dust that was clearly visible on the video recordings of the launch. As the mission continued over the next two weeks, NASA investigated the foam strike. The agency even formed a special internal committee in order to determine the severity. But foam shedding was nothing new. Of the 79 shuttle launches that were recorded on video, 65 of them had photographic evidence of foam falling from the fuel tank during liftoff. All in all, the foam layer on the shuttles had been struck many times with minimal consequence. Finding comfort in this pattern, NASA turned complacent. If there hadn't been a problem on previous missions, why would there be one now? Still, the investigating committee asked for more images of Columbia. The obvious problem, of course, was that the shuttle was already in orbit. The only way to get an image of the underside of the shuttle where the foam had hit was to divert Columbia toward a nearby satellite for a photograph. When this request came through, it was denied. The high-level managers at NASA didn't want to take Columbia from its mission for an issue that was considered a non-threatening maintenance concern. When pressed for an explanation, one of the chief engineers even said, I don't want to be a chicken little about this. By the seventh day of the mission, NASA sent a single communication to the Columbia crew about the foam strike. It said, there is absolutely no concern for re-entry. So two weeks later, on the morning of February 1st, the crew got into their spacesuits and strapped into their seats for the voyage back to Earth. They positioned the Columbia and began their descent through the atmosphere. Down in Houston, Mission Control noticed that temperature readings were fluctuating on the left wing, the same area where the foam had struck on launch. Then, the readings stopped completely. The foam strike had broken a heat shield tile on the underside of the shuttle's left wing during launch. Now, the heat of re-entry burned through the broken tile like a blowtorch. The wing disintegrated. Without it, Columbia immediately destabilized and began spinning around in the atmosphere. The crew was knocked unconscious as the cabin depressurized rapidly and the incredible blunt force trauma of spinning and slamming into their seats killed them within minutes. In the end, the massive G-forces tore the whirling shuttle apart. Following the second loss of a space shuttle and seven more dead astronauts, a Congress committee investigated NASA. They concluded that NASA's organizational failures were, quote, just as important as the foam. The entire shuttle program management team was restructured and inspections of the spacecraft's underside were required in orbit on all future missions to the International Space Station. But the sun was already setting on the five remaining space shuttles. After 133 shuttle missions, NASA was unable to recoup the project's exorbitant costs. In 2011, the program was shuttered. This was a stark reckoning. Just like Project Apollo before it, 
It was not the tragic disasters that ended the space shuttle program. It was money. For the first time in its history, NASA stopped exclusively building their own spacecraft. Today, space travel is in the hands of private companies. But they've had their own catastrophic failures, too. In 2014, the corporate-owned Spaceship Two crashed in the Mojave Desert. The ship, developed by Virgin Galactic, came apart in mid-flight after a fatal pilot error. The co-pilot had activated the feather system on the spacecraft too early, which swung its tail assembly upwards. As the vessel was moving at the speed of sound, it was torn apart and the co-pilot was killed. While his death was the most recent fatality in space travel, it will arguably not be the last. There is no such thing as perfection, and spacecraft are some of the most complicated machines ever made by humans. But humanity has always dreamed of reaching the stars, and still does. New developments in space travel continue to arrive, each offering a new realm of danger. And as hopeful as Gene Kranz's mantra was during the Apollo era, in space travel, failure is always an option. Join us next week as we examine the financial costs of space travel and how America's expensive journey into space took precedence over civil rights. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Andrew Messer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>